You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. We featured a number of quality independent speculative fiction publishers on the program, including Cohesion Press, Evil Girlfriend Media, Stranger Comics, and Ragnarok Publications. And I'm delighted to say we have yet another high-quality independent publisher joining us on the show today. Zero One Publishing was founded in 2011 and is dedicated to producing the best in speculative fiction, including graphic novels, prose fiction, and audio fiction, with a mission to offer readers a clean break from the literary world bloated with social justice agendas and movie pitches masquerading as novels. At Zero One Publishing, there are no safe spaces. I'm delighted today because we are not only have the publishers joining us on the show today, but we also have an author and an artist who work with the imprint as well, with the goal of hopefully giving listeners a behind-the-scenes look at the inner workings of an independent publisher and just how these creatives collaborate to deliver high-quality books and comics into the hands of readers everywhere. Joining us on the program today is Kat Rocha, Editor-in-Chief and CEO of Zero One Publishing. Josh Finney is a writer, lead graphic artist, and co-owner of Zero One Publishing. Also joining us is Bram Stoker Award-winning author Nicole Cushing. And finally, freelance artist Patrick McAvoy has also joined us on the show today. By the end of today's show, we hope that you'll have a bit more information about Zero One Publishing, why they do what they do, how they work with authors and artists, the challenges of running a small press, and discuss some of the awesome titles listeners can check out as well. Not to mention, we also have a giveaway coming up at the end of the program, so be sure to stay tuned for that. We are celebrating the 10th anniversary of the release of the cyberpunk noir graphic novel Utopiates, Zero One Publishing's first graphic novel. That's right, the first graphic novel, Cat. Is that right? That it is. Cool. So stick around at the end of the show. We're going to have a chance for four winners to pick up two digital copies and two hardback copies of the graphic novel. Thanks again, uh, Kat and Josh, for hooking that up as well. It's very much appreciated. Definitely. Oh, God. I am just so excited that this book has been out for 10 years, that we have been doing this and creating uh, books for 10 years. And so I'm just excited to be able to celebrate with you guys. Absolutely. It's a a utopia's party today, celebrating 10 years. So (laughs) let's first... First, just talk with you, Josh and Kat, and just tell us what inspired you to have this crazy idea to start a, a imprint, uh, Zero One Publishing. What 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 madness took hold of you and made you decide to start this business? I would have to say that it had uh, everything to do with our own experience in publishing in the publishing world. Uh, before we uh, started the company, uh, what were we doing? Well, we were uh, we were doing uh, graphic novels, actually. Again, Utopia's being our very first one. It came out back in two thousand six through uh, Bloodfire Studios, and uh, who no longer exists anymore. And uh, basically, we went from publisher to publisher, breaking our backs to create you know, wonderful books and, uh, quite frankly, getting screwed all the way. And it's like, you know, if I'm not going to be making money, I might as well do it for myself. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, we had uh, encountered a lot of corruption, um, a lot of, um, I don't know, in comics especially, when the Hollywood money really started pouring in, there was essentially a takeover of the entire industry and an attitude change as well, in which there was this general uh, attitude among the people in charge that if the writers and the creative people weren't getting screwed, they weren't happy. And it was always kind of baffling, because if you were agreeable, if you tried to work with them, it just meant you got stepped on. There was a lot of uh, crooked accounting, and we just kind of stepped back and said, you know, a business does not have to run this way. There is absolutely no reason you can't run a clean ship and that you can't publish uh, material that isn't just basically a movie pitch for a producer or, you know, a trend. You know, but actually produce good quality 
you know, stories and good quality books and things that, you know, readers actually want to read? Uh, we started just with our own material, but always had intended, and now, what, a couple years ago got to start publishing other people that we respected, people that we felt really deserved attention, mm -hmm. and that's where we are now. Our motto and our goal is to produce things, again, that uh, you know, the creators themselves love and that most people wouldn't touch because it's, quote, not marketable. Or you know it's you know not quote accessible to mainly the movie uh, industry. And it's like uh, I was sick of every other book I was doing having the uh, editors or publishers or Hollywood guys sit down with me and say, "Yeah, well, it's too cerebral." Yeah, God. <laughs> and you scale it back. Oh God. It's like you know, um, smart people deserve fiction too. You know. Sure. And you describe your your fiction as having no safe spaces. Tell us what you mean by that, and how it affects what you decide to publish. Well, quite frankly, when in uh, you know this world of uh, social justice, and you know needing to you know people playing the pronoun games, and uh, you know people not wanting you to use certain terms and certain words, and not talk about certain topics. It's like no, that's what speculative fiction is all about. Speculative fiction is made to make you think and make you question and ex you know explore new ideas. And no, you may not agree with them. But that's, again, the whole point. It's not to preach to the choir. Yeah, if, you come to, uh, if you're coming to speculative fiction looking for your views to be reaffirmed and for it to comfort you and make you feel safe, you really are reading it for all the wrong reasons, especially horror. And, you know, there's a lot of talk today about, you know, we need diversity, we need diversity. Well, the biggest diversity of all is the diversity of thought. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know... I thoroughly intend to uh, continue to look for people who I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, I would like a diversity of thought in our work. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Would you say that the the Sadist's Bible, then, the, the uh, novella that you recently have released with uh, author Nicole Cushing, who's joining us on the show today, would you say that that, that title lines up with that um, mantra of no safe spaces? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Nicole? Uh, well, I'm, my you know opinion is skewed because I'm the creator, obviously. So I create these things, and I find that they're... I'm obviously I'm trying to to say something with them that comes out of my heart and out of my mind. Uh, I'm not always prepared for how powerful an effect it has on the readers who find it, you know, ten times more disturbing than I did during the writing of it, maybe. But yeah, I, I think um, I mean my own take on on uh, a lot of the issues on you know going through uh, publishing right now is that I. I just do what I do. Uh, I, I have friends on every side of, of the spectrum. I like that conversation, kind of like what, what uh, Kat and Josh were saying, uh, with various people uh, throughout publishing. So I just do what I do. I'm, I'm writing from the heart. I'm writing uh, from the character's id uh, a lot of the time. And the character's id is, is something that... Uh, is definitely not a safe space by definition. So, yeah, I can... Would you want me to tell you a little bit about the Sadist Bible? Yeah, go yeah. ahead and give us a yeah. synopsis. Uh, basically, it's about uh, a Bible Belt closeted lesbian uh, in her late 30s named Ellie. And uh, Ellie is seeks a, a partner for a, for a suicide pact and goes online to a group on a social networking site that uh, is for people who want to meet partners for a suicide pact. And there she meets a a younger woman named Laurie, who is in her uh, early 
uh, 20s, and they decide that they're going to go ahead and meet for, uh, to complete their suicide pact, and before that, they're going to have uh, a very uh, lustful evening of, uh, of pleasure of the flesh, so to speak. And so they're, you know, they're, going to, they're going to have this you know, great sexual experience, and then they're going to kill themselves. And the problem is, is that Ellie doesn't know Lori very well, and Lori is hiding a lot, including her uh, involvements with uh, very, very vile metaphysical entities. So if I were to give you a elevator pitch for this, I might say it's lesbian Hellraiser uh, might be <laughs> might be one elevator pitch for it. Uh, but really what it's about is uh, it's about sexual trauma and the emotional aftermath of sexual trauma because Lori has uh, has experience with sexual trauma and uh, and rape. It's about sexual repression and the emotional consequences of sexual repression which is where Ellie is coming from, is, is a place of sexual repression. It's about the ugliness of that. It's about the ugliness of what happens when a broken, traumatized person becomes entangled with a, a, a broken, repressed person, and uh, the ugliness of the apathy to suffering and the suffering of the world and the ugliness of institutional and, and uh, interpersonal hierarchies and the groveling that they inspire. And... Uh, also, the the ugliness of the more predatory and animalistic aspects of both sexuality and spirituality. You know, certainly it is influenced by my own opinions regarding religion and the suffering that that can cause. So it's a book I'm very proud of, and the folks who have enjoyed it will often liken it to Clive Barker. You know, so if people enjoy the earlier works of Clive Barker, they may enjoy this. Some people have compared it to, to Dante's Inferno or Poppy Z. Bright. You know, those are some of the authors I'm often compared to by others. I'm, I feel like I'm my own voice, and uh, I don't necessarily try to become any, you know, any particular writer, but I find that you know, I, I just kind of turn out that way. I would liken it to a really, really, really strong cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask you, Kat and Josh, what, what, what grabbed you about the Sadist Bible when it first came across your desk and you saw this, this manuscript from, from Nicole? What was it about the, the title that first well, kind of grabbed you and made you think that this would be a, a zero-one title? Actually, it was the other way around. Um, mm-hmm. I had uh, first come across Nicole's work uh, when I heard a story of hers on Pseudopod, uh, which I, I just found utterly amazing. Listened to it more times than I can remember. And the title of that, it's... Uh, the hang. Um, I always get the title wrong. Nicole, what was the it, title? It, it's the the Orchard of Hanging Trees. Thank you. And yeah, the Orchard of Hanging Trees. Oh, you wrote that one. That was great. Yeah, wasn't that awesome? <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yeah. Oh, the things you learn on podcasts. Um, I had tracked down some of her work, and it was just my feeling at the time was, why doesn't anyone? Uh, know more about mm-hmm. this author. She's incredible. Then it was kind of a, I approached her and it wasn't even, oh, you sent us a manuscript. It was, I asked, what won't anyone else publish? And uh, quite frankly, uh, I took a look at it and uh, <laughs> oh, shit. I, uh, I, I had such a visceral reaction to the story. It's like, yeah, we need to publish this. If I am having this strong a reaction to the content, this belongs in in the uh, in the zero one you know wheelhouse. Seriously, yeah. Because uh, 
you know, again, no safe space. And uh, I, quite frankly, Nicole, I almost had nightmares over uh, some of the imagery that you had when I first read it. And it's like, yeah, I, I need to publish this. So as far as uh, promoting something like this as a publisher, Nicole gave a very great description of the book, but it sounds like it's a pretty complex story. It has various themes. How do you promote a, a book that you're not sure can be bottled down to a one basic thing? Like Lesbian Hellraiser is obviously pretty awesome, but as far as promoting it to different people, how would you how would you go about doing that? Well, how I like to uh, promote it is, uh, you know, I, I am very fond of elevator pitches. You know, the, the one-liner to get somebody's attention. Though saying Hellraiser is more accessible, I like to ask people if they're familiar with Hellbound Heart. And usually if you say Hellbound Heart and somebody's ears perk up, you know you've got them. Because uh, it's really closer to the short story than it is to yeah. uh, the movie. In my opinion, Nicole. I would agree with that. And, uh, yeah, and you know, again, you know, definitely if people are fans of Clive Barker, they will get into this story. And so that at least is an accessible point for promotion. And I would also uh, go as far as to say... Um, we kind of have been learning the uh, Roger Corman lesson. Yeah. Um, you know, we realized it was going to be a hard sell, not just to uh, say this Bible, but just the con. At a time right now where everyone, again, is so focused on you know hurt feelings and making everyone feel comfortable, we knew that r kicking the cages mm -hmm. was going to cause some problems. And we're learning the Roger Corman method of even a bad review is a good review. Yes. Mm. You know, it, it's wonderful when, uh, you know, people say things like this book needs a trigger warning. It's like, ah, it's not like yeah. <laughs> You know, if your book scares the hell out of someone and disturbs the hell out of someone so much they give it a bad review, people are going to read it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious who who is buying the book if called Sadist Bible and then they think they think, oh wait, <laughs> there's uh, <laughs> terrible stuff in this book. If I picked up the book, then I would immediately kind of know what I'm getting into. I would imagine. Do you find people are consistently shocked with your titles, Nicole, or do you feel you know your your fans kind of get what you're going for? Well, it's interesting because I was actually more uh, known for weird fiction uh, in that community, in the literary horror community. I, you know, I'd been nominated for a 2013 Shirley Jackson Award, which is you know, generally gravitates towards the more quiet, introspective stuff. And I like the quiet, introspective stuff, but I always say that I, I don't want to write gore for gore's sake, but I don't want to write atmosphere for atmosphere's sake either. You know, so I think most of my readers get it. It's I think it's that transition that some of them are, some of the folks who know me when I was writing more Lovecraftian stuff, for example, and the philosophical side of the, of the Lovecraftian stuff, I think, have embraced it, but a little bit less vigorously as the people who are just general horror fans. I mean, when I, when I look at who really embraces my work, it's a lot of my readers are men. You know, if I had to, like, guess, I would say probably two-thirds are men. You know, usually they're in the mid-40s. Usually they're into old-school horror. They're into small-press horror. They're into uh, crime fiction, a lot of them, and graphic novels and all those genres. So I think they come at it prepared. And I, I think that what I've understood the most is that my work tends to really be appreciated by the genre connoisseurs 
the folks who have read everything in horror and think that there's nothing left that will get to them. And then they read this or they read my novel, Mr. Suicide, and they say, oh, I didn't think that there's anything new in horror. And I was so glad to see your book because it made me scared in a new way or it disturbed me in a new way. And so that, that's what the direction I see. So I think horror fans, the hardcore horror fans, the you know connoisseurs of horror fiction who have been around for a while, I think really embrace it. I think it's just when folks come to the book from knowing me as more of a quiet writer, or if folks come to it from some of the other areas of genre fiction, if their fandom is mostly, you know, kind of something out far removed from horror, then that's where the problems sometimes get in, where they're just not expecting it. And part of it is because the story is very emotional. I'm not just out to provide blood and guts. That doesn't interest me. I'm more interested in getting inside the head of the reader and saying things about traumatic experiences. And so, and those traumatic experiences by definition are very disturbing and they're very graphic. And so I'm really wanting to look at trauma in its aftermath and grief in its aftermath and the emotions all involved with that. And I think people are sometimes not prepared for that. They're thinking that it's going to be more superficial and I'm not interested in being superficial. So I thought I'd mention at this point here that if folks want to buy books from Zero One Publishing, if they want to pick up a copy of the Sadist Bible or Case File Arkham or any of your other titles, they can they can just head over to Amazon or? Uh, yeah, all of our titles are available on Amazon. Um Zeta's Bible definitely is available on the Kindle. Same with uh, Case File Arkham, which we will be talking about later. Uh, that is available on the Kindle and uh, physical as well. And uh, we will be uh, printing Zeta's uh, Bible probably early next year. So uh, that will be available physically as well. But yeah, all, uh, all titles are available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all major booksellers. And uh, you can go to 01publishing.com. That's uh, the digit zero, the digit one, publishing.com to get a list of all the retailers. And you mentioned before about uh, your qualms with print on demand. So you don't necessarily print your books on demand. You mm. you wait for time. Is that right? Yes, definitely. Um, I have not been impressed with the quality of the books that come out of print on demand presses. Uh, yes, it has gotten better over the years, and I am very glad to see that. But I stress quality in zero one products. If I do not think that something is of quality, whether it's the writing or the printing itself. I will not stand behind it. Uh, so um, print-on-demand does not meet my personal standards at this time. Yeah, personally, quality is really the first thing that comes to mind when I'm thumbing through uh, like Utopias and even your most recent title, Case Follow Arkham. When I'm going through that, these graphic novels, these are top-notch graphic novels. I mean, the art, the writing, everything is just impeccable. It easily rivals DC or Marvel or any, any other publisher that's out there doing graphic novels. You guys easily meet and set the bar with the titles that you have coming out. But I wanted to transition here and I wanted to bring in Patrick and Josh a little bit more. And I wanted to discuss Case File Arkham is the other graphic novel series. It's an H.P. Lovecraft inspired graphic novel series. So the first one is out and maybe Josh or Patrick, maybe if you could tell us kind of what inspired Case File Arkham. Synergy of thought. Uh, <laughs> uh, Patrick yeah. and I had just come off of uh, a book prior to that, the first book we'd ever done together called World War Kaiju which was a very interesting working relationship. Patrick had largely been known for his work with, what, Lovecraft games? Yeah, games in general, collectible card games and board games. Uh, the uh, Call of Cthulhu card game and Arkham Horror board game were some big ones that people know about. 
so, but I'd also worked on, you know, uh, the Game of Thrones collectible card game for years and uh, Legend of the Five Rings and things like that. But yeah, I, uh, I had loved doing Lovecraftian art and uh, a lot of it had achieved a bit of a bit of success. And I wanted to do more of that in the comics uh, vein. Plus, Josh and I both like that sort of thing. And we were very, uh, both very into um, film noir. You know, yes. a hard-boiled detective genre, that, that dark and bleak fiction from the 40s and 50s. The book is just as much inspired by Chandler as it is Lovecraft, maybe mm-hmm. yeah. more. So in a series of conversations, we realized, uh, you know, that that was a, a sort of a two genres that go really well together that are hardly ever put together. It's a very underserved branch of fiction. And... Um, yeah, or at some, least uh, not done seriously. Yes, it, that's that's true. As a joke mm-hmm. or kind of a self-parody. Yeah, there's several movies and TV shows and things that have been done putting them together. And for some reason, it's always, yeah, it's quite often, uh, yeah, Cast a Deadly Spell is one everyone says, oh, remember that? Uh, yeah, I do. It was crap. Josh and I were uh, looking for something to do coming off of World War Kaiju, as he mentioned. And at first, Josh was saying, why don't we do something Lovecraftian? Because that's what you've, you've done a lot of in the past. And somehow, uh, over the course of many conversations, it morphed into, well, why don't we take something from a Lovecraftian story or then the Lovecraftian world, but give it a more proactive protagonist? Because we were both kind of, you know, sad that uh, most of Lovecraft's uh, protagonists end up fainting from horror. And <laughs> we wanted to uh, give, give it a bit more of a driven story. Does that sound right to you, Josh? Well, very, yeah, actually, it is all correct, but to kind of fill in the other half of the story, is, as I recall, what it was is we had just come off of World War Kaiju, uh, Zero One had published Whispers from the Abyss, which was very successful for us, and I don't know if you recall, but we were actually getting requests for you and I to do something Lovecraftian. It was I suppose we were, yeah. And you and I were talking, and we thought originally, okay, well, maybe we can just, you know, adapt a Lovecraft story to, uh, you know visual form and you can just kind of go mad with your art and it'll just be kind of a quick one-off and as i started going through it the thing that was annoying me most about lovecraft was that yeah all of his characters just kind of sat and let the world happen to them and then we were talking about how in film noir you know the other character forces their way through the care the story puts themselves in it and then you said you know i i still want to do something like angel heart (laughs) yeah and that was it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it went from there. Yeah, Angel Heart is a good touchstone. If anybody uh, out there hasn't seen it, I'd recommend it. It's uh, yeah, one of the very few really well done horror noir movies. Yeah, and then we started talking about it, and my tastes and Josh's tastes in this area were so in sync that the ideas just started flowing out from both of us. And, you know, we we ended up with this whole barrel full of great ideas, and Josh somehow hammered that into a story, <laughs> and and we were off and running. And uh, at, the, at the same time, I realized that this was a perfect opportunity for me to kind of break away from the style I'd been doing previously, which had been, uh, in comics, I'd been doing all painted work. You had kind of a very fantasy cover art style. Exactly. 
you know, all being painted in Photoshop, that is. And uh, I thought, well, you know, this is it. I'm going to break completely. I'm going to do stuff that's more in the vein of the old Warren comics from the 60s, you know, black and white, great line art, uh, and also influenced pretty heavily by Alex Raymond, who's a uh, comic strip artist from the 30s, 40s, 50s. And uh, once I had that, in uh, in mind as a visual style and uh, with a lot of inspiration on that end, I think uh, the visuals really started to take off too. As far as creating Lovecraftian style art, it, it can kind of go any direction, right? Like you can mm-hmm. kind of let your mind wander and take it in, take it in whatever direction you want to go in. There's been a lot of people doing Lovecraftian stuff over the years and kind of going back to what Nicole said about horror and that people have kind of seen everything. So anytime they can, you know, a book can shock or get the attention of a hardcore fan, then you're doing something right. What What is it about Case File Arkham that kind of does something more out there as far as like Lovecraft and stuff goes? I, I don't know if it goes out there uh, so much as it plays with your expectations. We, we set up a couple of worlds to collide. The film noir, detective noir fiction, and the uh, and the Lovecraft horror, and, and we let those two worlds kind of come together in various ways that people haven't seen before. Uh, how, how would you say it, Josh? I had seen and read a few things where people had merged uh, noir with the Lovecraftian stuff. And it all, again, it usually was uh, pastiche or parody. It never really took itself seriously. And I actually, first and foremost, wanted to write a genuine noir story that wasn't um, self referential or supposed to be, you know. And then, you know, I sat down in my office and the lights pressed through the blinds, striping my face with the mood that, you know, that, that kind of thing, <laughs> which is so often, I, I forgot what, it, we, we'd gotten a submission a while back where it was, you know, the first line was something like, I walked into my office, the rent check said what it always does, my life is screwed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, I wanted one that very much read genuine for the era, something that really, yeah. the thing with uh, noir, both uh, the 20s and then the film stuff that came in the 40s, was that it, it came from a time of strife. Uh, it came kind of from the same place that inspired Lovecraft. You had post-war economic problems. Nobody was really certain about their society, their place in society. Everything was in conflict. And noir really tried to capture that or was an expression of that. And I wanted to really honor that kind of story. That's what drove me. Actually, the Lovecraft stuff was the motivation for you know moving the story forward. But it was really the characters and the interaction that was uh, what made it for me. Kat, could you maybe give us a, a general overview of how maybe Case File Arkham came together from concept to publication? Maybe how long it took and what <laughs> steps you took to, to get that released? <laughs> Uh, she had this bullwhip, you see. Okay. <laughs> no, uh, well, the the concept uh, came together actually pretty quickly. I mean, I know they were in the thick of it, but uh, as an outsider, the two of them would sit up for hours talking on the phone or on Skype about you know bouncing ideas back and forth. 
uh, Patrick was, you know, sketching like mad and, and sending concept art. And uh, basically within, God, what, like a month, you had the first 10 pages done? Eight. But yes, eight, uh, eight or so, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> Which you then redrew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, they actually tore into this like mad. And uh, it, it was beautiful to uh, watch, but I did have to uh, crack the whip and, and uh, tell them, okay, guys, you got to scale it back a little bit because we do have a deadline. And a page count. And a page count. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite memories, honestly, is is both of them were coming to the end of creating this book. And both of you guys were like, okay, it'll be done. And then we can take a break and we can calm down and you'll know, return to normal. And within six <laughs> hours, they were back on the phone for the next book. I had an outline. Within, <laughs> within the week, I had an outline for follow-up. Yeah, after I finished the book, I'll be, okay, I'll be fine. It was like, fuck this book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had spent nine months. When I write something and it's in a genre, I pretty much live in it. I mm -hmm. won't expose myself to other stuff. So for about nine months, all I did was listen to uh, Elroy and Chandler and nothing but noir novels. And, you know, television was nothing but old movies. Mm -hmm. And that is all I lived in. It was constantly taking notes. Sunset Boulevard. And mm -hmm. by the end of it, I'm like, I, 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 don't want to watch any more detectives right now. <laughs> and yet, here we go. <laughs> now, it, it really did. Once it started rolling, it was a real freight train, and we had a great time. Uh, that there was a point where I kind of had to uh, slow down uh, because of some other commitments in life, which uh, involved making money. But <laughs> but once I really got going, and and Josh really got the the script finished, and uh, everything was on the way, we were. We were plowing through it. I think I was doing about a page a day, fully penciled and inked. And, uh, you know, for, for me, that's pretty good. And so we were, uh, we were rolling like crazy. Now, the interesting thing about the way we work, though, is that we don't do, at least on Case File Arkham, we weren't doing traditional scripts at all. Josh would give me a basically a rough idea of what the dialogue was going to be laid out on a on a page, you know, the size of the page that we were doing, and then uh, you know would have where he was thinking the the different panels would be and the relative sizes and whatnot. And sometimes he would include some uh, reference uh, material in there or a very funny little crude drawing of somebody, just <laughs> <laughs> a little outline. And so I would take that and I would generally ignore it completely, but. Uh, but the uh, but the nice thing about it was it would tell me you know what did he figure was the most important part of the page and what were the relationships between uh, the different panels and so I would I would not stray from that but I would usually kind of relay it out a little different and then when I was finished with a the page then he'd look at it and say oh well this is you know suggesting different dialogue or, or different pacing of some sort and then he would massage it from there once in a while he'd send it send it back to me when he was done with that and he says oh i think uh you know what you did here made me think of something else entirely so can you change this or that panel interesting fluid way to work and it's nice that we uh you know we're at a small company like this so that we don't have a big uh, corporate structure you know 10 editors you know looking into everything we're able to really have a fluid back and forth. With this, it really was a, a collective effort back and forth between Patrick and I. There wasn't, you know, just, I'm the writer, you're the artist, draw. I mean, there was so much back and forth.
I never want a factory where I want my, my creators to talk to each other and work with each other and find the best way. I do not like the, uh, the big, uh, comic book company, corporate structure, uh, factory pomp out. I do not like that at all. Yeah. The way that Patrick would draw a scene would sometimes make me rewrite the next scene to fit it better or every page after the art came back, the dialogue usually changed a little to match expressions or was removed (laughs) entirely because it wasn't needed because the drawing and the expression of the character was all you needed, which I always love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the story the storyline itself didn't change very much, but the the things within it did. For instance, uh, even even towards the end, and this is I, I love this book by the way. I don't know if you can tell this was like a labor of love for both of us. I I, I am so excited about it in a way I've never been excited about anything else I've done. But it, as we were getting towards the end, our conversations went from you know the early conversations about the character and situations they'd be in, what the plot would be, to uh, matters of theme and how are we going to, you know, now that we've finished it, you know, these themes have presented themselves and how do we bring those out? And, you know, because of the very fluid way we were working, we were we were able to uh, make a lot of last minute changes to pump up, you know, more inner ideas. And even though the plot wasn't changing, you know, individual motivations and things uh, were, were really coming out, you know, to the point where we would be going back 20, 30 pages and making little changes to things just to bring stuff out. And, you know, actually, when I started scripting this, I did have an underlying theme I wanted to work with, which was, you know, our, our hero, Hank Flynn, comes back from the war traumatized, and, you know, he himself has come back to a changed world, a different Arkham, and uh, he's kind of wrestling with uh, the difference between the man and the killer. How is he different from this monster he's hunting, or Pikmin as it is? and dealing with his own post-traumatic stress. And that was a real driving factor for all of it. Patrick really did some cool things that I didn't write into it or couldn't have written into it, where there'd be a scene where he he shot someone and uh, the expression is ambiguous. Yeah, it left a lot of room to really do acting. That, that's a <laughs> that's a thing. Uh, it is. It's just like, it's, you're, yeah. like the, all, you're like all the actors, the lighting guy, the... Yeah. Well, that's the thing a lot of artists do that people don't know about. We sit and look in the mirror quite a lot while we're trying. <laughs> and we say, okay, now I'm going to be this character doing this. And what would I think? And, you know, and try to try to actually act and then catch those expressions. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So Case File Arkham, that's available in digital format presently, correct? Uh, both digital and physical. You can uh, order your own uh, uh, paperback copy on uh, Amazon and, again, all uh, booksellers. And let me tell you, when you do black and white, there is nothing like seeing it on the printed page. Screens do not do black and white justice. Mm -mm. Oh, this thing looks beautiful. It printed so great. Uh, I put a lot of detail into it, and the the pages are just packed with with panels and and interesting little stuff. And the printing job is just phenomenal. I have have literally never seen better black and white printing. Good. (laughs) Again, I I produce quality. (laughs) The quality definitely stands out. I mean, when I'm looking at Utopiates and I'm looking at uh, Case File Arkham, the production is top-notch for sure. Which brings us to Utopiates celebrating the 10-year anniversary. I did want to mention that we are giving away four copies of that book. We'll have two digital copies for folks around the world, and then we'll have uh, two paperback copies for folks. And that'll be a North America giveaway for those paperback copies. But uh, we can go ahead and announce the giveaway here and 
then we'll have a couple more items of discussion and then we'll wrap up the conversation here. But I wanted to announce that we are giving away those books. So it's very easy to enter. All you have to do is email us at grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. Put in the subject line, zero one publishing, no safe spaces. And the first four people who email us after this episode drops are going to win a copy. Two people in North America and then two people um, North America or abroad will pick up digital copies as well. Um, 18 and over, I think will be a good good place to be for, for this <laughs> yeah. title. The uh, elevator pitch is Blade Runner meets train spotting. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like that. So yeah, uh, thanks again, uh, Kat and Josh, for hooking up those four copies to give away to folks. And uh, folks, in, uh, again, just email us. It's uh, grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. And happy 10 years since the release of Utopia. It's, it's a cyberpunk noir oh, title. So you guys... You, kind of noir, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have a thing for noir, you folks at Zero One. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it, 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 noir, just like horror, you know, explores the uh, the dark side of humanity just in a different way. German expressionism. Mm-hmm. Utopia is definitely influenced by uh, Fritz Lang and, again, Blade Runner. Uh, how could it not? Yeah. Jeff Noon's work was a big influence, and yeah, of course, William Gibson. Definitely. Kat and Josh, you both are like characters in Utopiates. <laughs> too, is that right? I'm a cheap model, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually uh, started life off as uh, Josh's penciler, actually, mm-hmm. um, I, on uh, Utopiates, and uh, found I'm better at business than I am at art. But uh, the uh, uh, I am very proud of Utopiates still to this day. And uh, I would say it's probably one of the best jobs I did artistically. And uh, Josh just did a phenomenal job uh, putting this together. It, it actually, uh, uh, Utopia started off as a, an original short story. Uh, yeah, yeah. originally it was just a, a short story that I'd penned. And then it was a five-page short that I had sent to 2000 AD. Mm-hmm. And um, then I made it a one-issue story, expanded it out, and... Uh, Bloodfire Studios had seen it, and they said, okay, this is great. Okay, where are the other three? Yeah. So I wrote three more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, and and just like with everything Zero One Publishing puts out, it explores difficult topics, uh, you know, drug use, honestly, terrorism. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and... Religion. Uh, religion, um, you know, yeah, yes, uh, it... it, it as uh, Nicole has mentioned, exploring religion is you know, one of the things Zero One likes to do. <laughs> when I approached it, um, you know, actually my background really is a lot more of the uh, cyberpunk era, you know, William Gibson, Harlan Ellison, John Shirley type sci-fi. That's really my background. And my biggest influences, aside from maybe uh, A Clockwork Orange, are primarily the cyberpunk stuff. Uh, Mamoru Oshii's had a massive influence in what I do, but I'm primarily known for the horror stuff, strangely. But this first book was trying to get a lot out of my system in terms of needing to put a lot of that imagery on the page. And I had had kind of a a background in music for a while. I'd worked in the music industry, and um, I knew a lot of heroin addicts. (laughs) And I was processing that reality through the book at first, and then later it became processing uh, my own post-traumatic stress and not being aware that that's what I was doing. And then, of course, who doesn't have some issues with religion? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of back and forth uh, comparing the drug to... uh, Religion. Well, you had said that um, a lot of heroin addicts had... Yeah, they had often spoke of the drug as a person would speak of a religious experience, and I found that very 
very disturbing that they were kind of getting from it what what religion always promised but never delivered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right down to you know the uh, you know being punished for quote being bad. Oh yeah, well it was no every every time you went in for the needle and uh, got the pleasure, they did it with the knowing knowing that when they came out of it they'd have the hell, mm-hmm. and it was a full awareness that their pleasure came with punishment, and it, it was a something that these people felt very comfortable with. Weird. <laughs> yeah. So in this way, they kind of had this weird worship of the drug, but also fear. And so uh, Utopiates explores that. Utopiates is a uh, a next-level drug that actually alters your personality. And uh, the first, it's a, it's a collection of short stories, all centered around this one particular dealer and the uh, different uh, drug addicts that she has in her thrall. And um, the first story, just to give you a taste, centers around a particular, you know, junkie who his utopia of choice simply makes him feel like there's a family somewhere out there that actually gives a damn about him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's another one is the uh, lot of Gen X anger in there of being mm-hmm. kind of the latchkey generation is definitely present. But yeah, um, but yeah, that that uh, um, exploring that uh, you know loneliness and feeling abandoned and you know that that need to be loved would the, would drive this person to such a you know lengths. And actually, that first story, uh, which anyone who really has noticed, the character doesn't even have a name. You mm-hmm. never know what it is. Was also uh, driven by the fact that through my youth, I had known a lot of gutter punks. I, I don't think that means anything anymore. But in the '90s, it was kind of these. Um, they still exist under different names. I think they're called crusties now, or something, or scuzzy. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you know, gutter punks were these uh, tribes of uh, you know, usually teenagers that were the punk goth, kind of in the uh, alt scene, and would live in these uh, tribal existence because home wasn't safe. And they usually had their squats and this whole culture behind it. And that was also something well, that, that I keep... The story that you told me was you were driving somebody home from a club, and yeah. their home was under an overpass. Yeah, with a barrel fire and a bunch of yeah teens gathered around it. And yeah, there was a lot I was getting out with uh, Utopiates. Um, I don't know. I'm a little detached from it now because it's 10 years out. I probably should have reread it before coming on. But, um, yeah, it you know, it was a very difficult time for me. I had gotten out of school. I had, uh, I don't even want to get into it. I, I'd been attacked and nearly died uh, and was for finally coming to terms with the post-traumatic stress of it. And uh, just a lot of the really terrible things I'd seen through my 20s and had, you know, I was never really a party to, but a witness of a lot of that. And um, a lot of people I came across who I felt were just very tragic souls. And that all came out in this. I mean, there's another story about a uh, woman who's a a lesbian, but uh, she's on the street and working kind of as a hitman because she was Amish and she got kicked out. And ended up on drugs and uh, working for this dealer character. And the dealer character herself um, is never entirely supposed to be real. You're not sure if she's really a real person or a fantasy. Whenever she shows up, she's kind of an embodiment of the drug itself. And she uh, speaks and uh, twisted biblical. Actually, almost everything I have her say is a uh, Bible quote that's been reworked or warped in, in some way. Although there's a little bit of Faust and a little bit uh, of Grace Slick in there as well. But for the most part, it's biblical quotes being twisted in just enough of a way to uh, push a drug. 
and it often works very, very well. So no doubt, Zero One Publishing started off with a bang with a publishing fiction that was uh, No Safe Spaces and continues today with the Status Bible and Nicole Cushing's uh, release as well. So you've transitioned from graphic novels to anthologies to novellas. Um, so definitely running the gambit of offerings for your readers. I wanted to bring in Nicole one more time because she's just been sitting there quietly, patiently. I wanted to say, first of all, drop the mic on the Bram Stoker win. <laughs> well done. Thanks. Uh, yeah, congratulations Thank on that. You. That's uh, very cool. You won it for the title, Mr. Suicide. Yes, that's correct. What's that book about for folks who are not familiar with that? Uh, it is, well, again, going back to elevator pitch language, uh, Catcher in the Rye meets the Telltale Heart. Uh, it's about a depressed young man in Louisville, Kentucky, his dysfunctional family, his suicidal thoughts talking to him in a uh, persona called Mr. Suicide, kind of urging him to do it. And uh, his his uh, struggles with that uh, and his eventual connection with a mystical force called the Great Dark Mouth, which entices him in, down in either even darker roads of uh, degeneracy, madness, violence, and uh, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's uh, it's yeah, that's that's the general sum up. Must have been pretty uh, amazing for you to pick up that win for that title, then. Yeah, definitely, and, and a little surreal. I mean, you know, one of the things I I can explain about this is that there's really no other experience in publishing quite like that. Where you know, uh, most of the time as a writer, you know, I live in Southern Indiana, and it's you know, I'm very low key. You know, is I I I just you know, I'm here in the house dressing like a slob, writing my books. And uh, and then before you know it, there I am in Las Vegas at this award ceremony, and R.L. Stein is at the award ceremony, you know, and uh, and other pe- people from publishing and from film and this kind of thing are there. Your name is called out from a microphone to a group of your peers and broadcast on a live stream internationally, and that's just so surreal because writers are are you know what much of what we do is not very public and not receiving praise and and to prepare for that emotionally is just an odd experience because we typically we don't do that like when when uh, a publisher is is announcing a table of contents for an anthology they uh, uh, set up a grand ceremony and announce who who got in and who almost got in <laughs> you know it's just not done that way and so you know it's just a strange experience experience to be there not knowing if you've won and then being told that you've won and then feeling the validation for that and all, you know the the validation for the work I mean I'm I'm proud of the book and uh, I'm really excited that the book is has been appreciated by my peers uh, which the, that's who votes for the Bronze Stoker award uh, and I'm, I'm also, um, you know, proud and, and pleased for, uh, my, the publisher and editor of that book, Ross Lockhart, who, you know, like the folks here at Zero One, uh, took a chance on something that, uh, was controversial and was willing to do that in a publishing environment where not everyone is. You know, that's another thing about, about publishers like, like Ross or like Kat and Josh here at Zero One is that they're bold. You know, and and we need bold publishers. We need publishers who are willing to take chances. So I'm proud to be associated with uh, both of these publishers, and uh, it's really cool. We we talked to some authors about the winning awards or being on the best best of lists of uh, for various websites and getting critical acclaim and all all these kind of things. 
Do you feel winning the award has opened up any new doors for you or has given you uh, more power? <laughs> I, I can't, oh, yeah. can't think of a better word for it. Power, I guess. Clout. Yeah. yeah. yeah clout. Uh, uh, well, uh, you know, we live in an era where there are literally probably a million horror writers, you know, all, all around the world aspiring to get their book on Amazon or whatever. And so anything that you can do that establishes your bona fides as uh, someone who is to be taken seriously and who has influence in the field is great. And award nominations can do that, certainly. Uh, the Shirley Jackson Awards uh, nomination and uh, for, you know, they had for a novella in 2013 that helped me out. And then the win helps you out even more. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm getting, um, you know, more in- interview invitations, more invitations for anthologies, you know, uh, even invitations to be involved in, uh, in editorial work for small press magazines. And yes, you know, a lot of these invitations I have to turn down actually, unfortunately, you know, uh, because things are so busy right now. But yeah, it, it puts you in the limelight of the field for a little bit. And then, you know, the, the feeling that I have now is that uh, you know, I can't let rest on my laurels. I always want to get better and better and better as a writer. I'm not satisfied with where I am as a writer now. I want to continue getting better. I want to continuously improve. And, uh, you know, Harlan Ellison said something once in an interview that uh, the, the secret to writing is that anyone can become a writer. But it's more difficult to stay a writer year after year, decade after decade, and continue building and continue improving. And I have a dedication to that. And that's the, the goal now is that basically I, the, the comparison that he offered in this one interview I heard of him was uh, that you want to build a mountain range out of your career. So there will be peaks and there will be valleys, but it's uh, a body of work that has you know depth and width. And uh, has a certain shape to it that's defined and hopefully has has some influence on the field. And so that's like the, the next mission, right? Um, so the initial thrill fades fairly quickly uh, just because <laughs> you can't sustain that level of euphoria, you know, for very long. But uh, but it, it definitely feels a bit like a leveling up. And that's that's really cool. What are you working on now, Nicole? I am working on a novella, uh, tentatively called Broken Monsters, uh, which I've been invited to submit to an anthology of novellas for another publisher. And uh, I'm working on nonfiction stuff, actually. Part of what I do is interview people uh, in the horror business, so I'm I'm working on some of those things. And I'm also looking forward to getting back to my novel in progress, which I've had to set aside, um, working on a novel tentatively called Knife and Wound. And so that's another another project uh, there too. So lots lots going on. It's the busiest that I've ever been. I have lots of opportunities coming my way these days. But uh, that's a that's a good thing. And and uh, I always tell people that I am the world's happiest nihilist. Uh, so, <laughs> so you know this is a good time. You know the nihilism business is good. Uh, and and so I'll take that. We believe in nothing. <laughs> well, if you believe in nothing, you'll never be disappointed, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we are almost out of time. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation getting to talk with you, Josh and Kat and Patrick and Nicole, just a wide swath of creatives on the show today. It's been fascinating conversation. Uh, folks can pick up Case File Arkham now. We've got the four copies of Utopias to give away. Um, wanted to just uh, get some contact information, let folks know if there's any con appearances coming up for any of you folks, and then we'll wrap things up. So first of all, 01publishing.com is the website that folks can go to to check out more. So let's give out contact information of Twitter, Facebook. We'll start out with you, Josh and Kat. Well, uh, Zero One Publishing is Zero One Publishing at, um, on Twitter, you know, just at Zero One Publishing. Uh, same with uh, Facebook. Again, the website, the numeral zero, the numeral one, publishing.com. Uh, by the way, we will be doing, actually, we have uh, two Kickstarters coming up in uh, the coming months, so stay tuned. As I mentioned before, we will be uh, printing Nicole's uh, um, Sadist Bible, and we will be doing a Kickstarter for that, so look out for that. And then uh, Case File Arc. Volume 2 will be having a Kickstarter as well uh, later this summer, actually. So uh, look for both of those books to be, uh, you know, get in on them uh, early for the uh, Kickstarters. I will be making announcements on all social media and the Zero One Publishing website. Uh, and that's where uh, you'll find all of us. Josh? Don't pay attention to me until the election cycle's over. <laughs> uh, Patrick? Uh, well, you can uh, find me at uh, my website, megaflowgraphics.com, uh, and you can uh, see lots of stuff that I've done. Uh, there's a section where you can buy things and get commissions and all sorts of stuff. So that'll be fun uh, for everybody. The whole family will enjoy that experience. And uh, then I'm on Facebook. Look up Patrick McAvoy Art, or just look up Patrick McAvoy, but like Josh, don't uh, don't follow me until the election's over. <laughs> uh, plus, there's, there's a lot more cat. Uh, cat videos on that one. So Patrick <laughs> McAvoy Art's probably going to stick more to the subject. Awesome. Nicole Cushing, where can folks find you online? Well, it's NicoleCushing.com. I always tell people there's no H in Nicole. So it's N-I-C-O-L-E-C-U-S-H-I-N-G.com. Uh, I will be at uh, the Scarefest convention in Lexington, Kentucky uh, on September the 30th through October the 2nd. And I will also be at the Imaginarium convention in Louisville, Kentucky from October the 7th to October the 9th. Awesome, awesome. Zero One Publishing, no safe spaces. Josh and Tad, Patrick McAvoy, Nicole Cushing. And you, Philip Overby. Thanks, everybody, <laughs> for hanging out on the Grim Tidings podcast today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Best of luck to you, Josh and Kat, with Zero One and all the awesome titles that you guys have coming forth. Patrick, with your artwork, and Nicole, with your writing. Such a great uh, lineup of guests today. It's been great speaking with all of you. Thank you very Thank much you. for having us. Awesome to be here. You can find us online at facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast or on Twitter at grimdarkfiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time.